Thank you for listening to Mass Device Radio. In this podcast, recorded live on June 24th in St. Paul, Minnesota, at our Device Talks Minnesota show, we spoke with CVRX's Nadim Yared, 3M's Deb Rechtenwald, and St. Jude Medical's Philip Ebling about the future of the medical device industry. The panel is moderated by Mass Device's Brad Periello. Thank you for downloading this Mass Device podcast. Deb, I'd love to get your perspective coming from a, a pretty large-scale organization at 3M on whether there are more mega deals in store, and if so, why do you think that's likely? Oh, gosh. I'm, I don't know. I think that... Uh, um, you know, you look at all the different, you look at different industries and you'll see them swinging, you know, back and forth. Um, I think it's certainly going to make everybody ask a lot of questions. Um, if you look at the consolidation going on in the provider side, um, that's huge. Uh, I think there was at least $20 billion worth of deals last year, big deals too. Um, and it looks like they're on pace to do the same size this year. So it's not only the supplier side, but uh, the provider side. So I think uh, it is certainly going to make uh, a lot of uh, companies ask uh, different kinds of questions. And Phil, what's your take from, I don't know if St. Jude is strictly technically a mid-cap, but from the slightly smaller scale, mm -hmm. do you see companies of your ilk looking to unite with other companies in the sort of the same stratus to be able to compete with the big boys or picking up? more small cap and private companies. What's the outlook on that side? Yeah, I was, I was thinking back to my Boston days. I was there during the, the Guidant acquisition. So I, uh, I remember that day when that was announced telling my colleagues that we'll never see this again, right? And, and here we are with something arguably even bigger and, and we'll see if it's better. But so, you know, far be it for me to predict that it won't happen again. And if history's an indicator, it probably will, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think when we look at the space, though, more to your question, I think there's a lot of ways to, to win in, in this market, in this industry. And, and when we look at it personally, uh, a lot of our energy is really focused around, let's pick really large epidemic disease states that we think we can win in. Uh, let's be smart and, as Stacy talked, to be health economic about it and ensure that uh, the payers and our customers can, can gain access to it. And then I think maybe most importantly, remember that um, a balance of what I'll call traditional acquisition and traditional organic innovation feeds that. And so I look at our own experience where we've made, I think, some smart acquisitions that fit that model. Obviously, smaller than the scope we talked about earlier, but we've also been smart, I think, in how we've thought about our organic investment. You know, at a rate of, in our case, 12% per year of, of revenue into R&D year after year after year for the last, call it, decade. So I think there's a lot of ways to get at it. And Nadim, from your perspective on the private side, I know you're very active with the emergency, excuse me, Advamed's Emerging Growth Companies Council. How does this Medtronic Avidian deal affect the outlook for the constellation of small players in the industry? Uh, it, it, it is large. Uh, it is a huge impact for multiple reasons. But first, if I step back one second, why do we think this happened? And do, mm -hmm. do I think that this will keep happening? And the answer is obviously yes. I've seen it before in the 90s. Many of you might not remember it on the imaging side. So I worked at the time at GE, uh, John Thrani, Jeff Emmel, Jack Welch. And by the end of the 90s, we had three major imaging companies, not 20, not, actually Omar, Omar was running, Omar Ishraq was running the mm -hmm. ultrasound 
company within the division within GE. And I think he did six or seven small acquisitions. They consolidated a very fragmented market. Why did that happen? Well, the growth was stalling. The last major innovation was the invention of MRI in 1982. We created a lot of growth with CTs and MRIs, with 3D imaging, 3D reconstructions in the late 80s, early 90s, and then suddenly no more growth. Mm -hmm. So we started creating services, end up being 40% of GE revenue coming from services. We tried to figure out how do we get more efficient operationally. So try to grow the bottom line if we cannot grow the top line. And that's where you were forced to do these consolidation. So we, if we look at the medical device, the implantable space, where there's 510Ks, PMAs, I mean, you're seeing it. We've seen a slowing down of the growth. And we can talk about it. Why is the venture funds you know, drying out? Mm -hmm. Why is this going on since 2008 or even slightly before that? But this is going to happen more and more often. Now, would it be the scale of Medtronic Vision? Maybe not. But we're going to see more and more consolidation to get the cost down. How does this affect small companies? Well, a lot. The first big thing in the announcement that Sunday, actually, we didn't see it on the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, uh, the notion about the $10 billion investment. And I wish that when Gary Ellis talked about it, he did not speak about the increase in R&D, but rather focus on investing in innovation through minority equity investment or acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And that is big. I think the solution for our industry is in our hands. We keep talking about medical device tax. We keep talking about the FDA and CMS and reimbursement, all of the issues. But the solution, those issues will continue, whether it's the patent laws or the litigation to the tort law. or all of, Those are going to come mm -hmm. and become even more complex day after day. We're not going to solve them. So the solution has to come from our industry. And within Advamed, we've been talking about this over and over again. This $10 billion commitment from Medtronic over 10 years is huge. We need to see this more coming from more companies, because this is what's going to give the Warburg Pincus of the world more uh, encouragement or at least a form of a promise mm -hmm. that, hey, if you build the next EV3, we can make it a $2 billion acquisition for the next Covidian you know, in 10 years down the road. That's what is going, uh, this is how this Medtronic Covidian acquisition, and particularly the $10 billion piece of the announcement is going to impact smaller mm -hmm. companies like mine. Now, in our small world, uh, the venture world, we, we see acquisitions and consolidations a lot. Mm -hmm. But in the bigs, you know, the Zimmer Biomet or the Medtronic Vidian, those are rare. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit to another sort of hot button issue, which is renal denervation for hypertension. Oh, I love that. Obviously. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to you soon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously that was... Well, don't start with me. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, that was sort of a big shock for the rest of the industry, um, the, the failure of Simplicity 3, and a great example of why it's so difficult to treat hypertension. Nadim, you've had sort of a similar experience with a clinical trial that failed to meet some of its endpoints mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in the same treatment area. Uh, what's your take on the future of treating hypertension with medical technology? You know, when we started this, we created a lot of even the terminology that is being used today and mm -hmm. some of the definitions and the endpoints. And we had discussions with CMS back in 2003 mm -hmm. and seven to try to find what are the surrogate endpoints and how would United Healthcare look at the reimbursement and all of those. We were doing the heavy lifting. So when Ardian and later on Medtronic came after that, this was relatively easier for them. But one thing they did not spend enough time doing was analyzing the reason why our trial was 75% successful, not 100% successful. 
and I think they end up stumbling somehow in a similar fashion, but to a bigger extent than what we did. In our trial, the double-blinded randomized separation between the arms was big. We can see clearly an effect. We turn our device off, we see the patient's blood pressure going up immediately. We turn it on, it goes down. We measure the sympathetic tone using advanced. We see this. With real intervention, it's harder. You do an effect, which is you burn the nerves, right? Mm -hmm. And you might not see the impact immediately. You might need to wait a month, a week, a month, six months to see the results. And then you start wondering, where did that blood pressure reduction come from? Is it a change in medication? Is the, you know, the cat was sick and now the cat is not sick anymore? Did I take more anxiety drugs or what else, right? So it's harder to figure out and extract the signal coming from real innovation than it was for my product. And therefore, it was harder to design a trial that would be successful. I think Medtronic made a couple of mistakes, some of them based on the notion that, hey, we know how to do clinical trial. So we don't need to listen to or to read what CVRX has done. And some of it is as well a misunderstanding of the market dynamic and where are the sources of patients and who are the physicians. One of the attractiveness of renal innovation I heard over and over again was the single core point. Let me tell you something. In the current day and age, there are no more single core point therapies in the medical device space. You have to work from the referral source to the implanting side. And even before the referral source, how do you educate the patient? Most of the patients do self-refer. So that single call point actually may be also what hurt Medtronic a little bit in, yeah, in, in yeah. the US. I think we jumped too much into trying to figure out, is this a problem bigger than the Medtronic device or the Medtronic trial design? Is this something about the entire industry or the entire approach? I think we're trying to read into it too much right now. It's mm. a bit too soon. I'm sorry, a long answer, but this is what I do. Like, That's why we're here. Know, 24 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Phil, I'd love to ask you about that because, in hindsight, it seems that St. Jude might have been a little prescient in, in halting one of their enlightened trials ahead of the news about Simplicity 3. So I'd love to, to get your views on the future of RDN for... Yeah, so I think let's start with the market. So but by our estimates, 1.2 billion people have some form of hypertension. And, mm -hmm. and if that's true, uh, and by my math, if there's 7 billion people on planet Earth, one in seven, give or take, have this problem. Uh, the market is real, the disease state is real, and the interest is real. And so, um, you know, our interest in the space, frankly, has not waned. You know, we've been very public and open with, um, you know, we, we stopped our trial in the U.S. really believing, like we all believed, that, that this is a space that can be uh, continued. We looked for, frankly, you know, continued science and, and activity around that, and now we're coming back with you know, new and improved ways to think about taking our existing device currently being sold in Europe, studying that in Europe and the US. I, I don't think our desire to figure this out has, has shrunk for all the reasons that Nadim mentioned. Maybe what I would add to that point though is that if anything as a technologist what I learned is science can be cruel, right? And so at the end of the day, what did we learn more than anything else? I learned that when I ask 100 interventional cardiologists what went wrong with HTN3, I get 100 answers, mm -hmm. literally, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've asked 100, but whatever the number is, I get an answer per person. And if you ask 100 hypertension specialists, you'll get 200 answers. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> so so what does that tell me as a technologist? That tells me that the answer is still out there, and, and doing some more basic science to figure this out isn't mm -hmm. a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And so we're committed to that. We've been committed to that from day one. We hit a bump in the road. Look, innovation's hard, right? 
I mean, think of all the examples over the years where if we swung and missed and then went home mm -hmm. and didn't try again, how, how frankly what we know today would be very different. So we are bullish, we have been, we continue to be. I think that's not gonna change. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 1980s, actually, the, one of the drugs that today is part of the center of care, beta blockers, and most of you have heard of this, this drug failed the first two trials. Mm -hmm. FDA wanted to shut down any single experiment with the drug, and Mike Bristow at the time took the data set with him, drove from Colorado to DC to argue with the FDA that no, we should be allowed to do more trials. Today, if as a physician you do not prescribe beta blocker, you're, you can be sued for malpractice. It, it, takes, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of... Persistence. That's totally. Now, from a small company perspective, though, and I'm, I'm here, I'm putting my Advermed EGCC hat on, uh, this has had a negative impact on the flow of money to sm small companies. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in terms of exits or in terms of minority equity investment from strategics or uh, investments from VCs. Everybody's looking at Simplicity 3 saying, wow, it's very hard to bet on PMA type products. So until you get your PMA approved, don't talk to me about funding your trial. And we all know that to get a PMA approved these days, you need minimum 75 to $100 million. Mm -hmm. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. So after you spend those, then you can go and knock on the door of a VC to give you your Series A $5 million mm -hmm. check. <laughs> well, Phil, I'd like to ask you also about, you know, you're in charge of overseeing St. Jude's R&D spend. And I, you touched on this a little bit earlier, the mix of internal development versus acquisitive development, call it. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to just hear your take on, on how you do the cost-benefit analysis of outsourcing R&D versus mm -hmm bringing it up in-house. Right, so as maybe a, a precursor to that, so our 2013 annual report came out not too long ago, and on the front of it, the phrase innovation or driving force was on the front cover, and you open it up, and Dan Starks, our CEO, immediately begins to talk about a number of issues related to innovation, but one that's very clear is this topic, and that is, you know, if it were up to me as a leader of a large R&D org, it would be 100% organic, 0% <laughs> acquisition, right? I mean, let's face it, as nothing gives engineers and scientists more joy, frankly, than, than working on things that really matter, okay? But, but the reality is, if you have a model, in our case, the business model is, I think, relatively easy to articulate, and I kind of mm -hmm. said it earlier, we find disease states where we think we can win and impact patient lives in a health economically smart way, okay? And as innovators, we keep that in the back of our mind, but we recognize that we can't do it all on our own, and that there is some healthy balance between acquisitions that fill in gaps and organic development that taps our strengths. We're not good at everything, right? I was thinking, you, somebody mentioned Kevin Love earlier, so back to basketball a second. You know, when I think of, there we go, like this. When, when I think of acquisitions, it's sort of like the NBA draft where you're always faced with you've got three draft picks and you have to ask yourself, am I gonna draft the best player or am I gonna draft for need, right? Mm -hmm. I think St. Jude and other companies do a pretty good job of, of doing both. There, there are some cases where you look at our CardioMEMS acquisition recently where we said we want to grow in heart failure and we think that's a great way to do it and, and that's a, a way to really seed that business, that's drafting the best player available. Um, when we bought our Endosense technology, our force sensing catheter technology a year ago, that was drafting for need because we're already strong in ablation management and arrhythmia management, but we needed to be stronger and that was a technology that we needed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's all part of innovation. That's all part of the story. And uh, what I'm proud of is we do all that, and yet we still, again, put 12% of our revenue in organic R&D 
that drives innovative spirit within the business. Mm -hmm. Deb, I wanted to ask you about uh, the ACA and how it's affecting the consolidating hospital base. You do a lot of work with hospital-acquired infections. Mm -hmm. I was hoping that you could tell us sort of what's the scale of that mm -hmm. and how the ACA, particularly in cost containment, is affecting your hospital customers. So, you know, let me, you know, try to maybe just make a comment on the, um, you know, what's going on with um, the ACA and, you know, what, what's the impetus and what's reform all about. And um, I'll tell you, you know, if it's done anything really powerfully, it's really brought up the awareness of what uh, is going on in terms of healthcare globally. I would start with um, maybe how unaware most Americans were in terms of how much money we are spending on our healthcare system compared to any other country on the face of the earth. So um, to get in touch with um, how much the, you know, that rate is and how much money that is um, and how unsustainable it is, um, I think has been a real silver lining to all of that. And if you start peeling the envelope back and saying, why are the cost, you know, there's going to be infinite numbers of answers to that. But um, I'll never forget the time, you know, a couple, is it like four or five years ago when I, with the CDC, and I, you must have all seen it, where you've got a map of the United States in 1965 and in 1970 and 1975, and then it's color-coded with, you know, in 1965, it's all white with nobody being in. I'm, I don't remember what the statistics were, but maybe there's one or two states, you know. Uh, I don't think it was Minnesota that were overweight, that there's 25% of the population that was overweight. And then you fly through the CDC report, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're in 1990, and it's, you know, now it's all cold coated red. So it doesn't take much of a scientific education or a background to understand that that's not a random situation. There is a cause and effect. And so what I wonder, um, and the direction we're really trying to ask ourselves is, we've built an industry and we've got a country that's really great at disease management. We've got all kinds of you know, great technologies in, in terms of doing it, and I think we continue to make improvements there. And then what you're saying in terms of how do you take someone with a chronic condition and use our medical device technology to keep them from getting into the acute state and keep them, you know, into the, you know, uh, from advancing in their chronic conditions. And then if you look at some of the uh, exciting research that's coming out and looking at the cause, you know, some of the suggestions of the causes for, you know, chronic conditions, there may be technologies out there that could prevent a lot of the chronic conditions to take place. So I hope we wouldn't leave tonight, you know, without thinking, you know, that there might be, you know, uh, you know the way you frame the, the, the question may take you down one path, but should we be taking a step back? And I'll just make this last comment. It just came from, from India. And if you want to talk about uh, a collision or a tsunami, this country, you know, is working on, you know, 1.3 billion people, um, you know, maybe 300 have access to fundamental care. So they've got, and it's a political issue, and of course everybody has a conscience and they want to try to get fundamental care out there. And then they're struggling with communicable diseases, okay? They just uh, have had great success in eradicating polio. 
but they've got still a lot of other diseases to go on to, to, to cure. And then all they've got now, you know, some the rates of chronic conditions. So they're going to be having the whole problem of getting, you know, just fundamental care, communicable diseases and non-communicable diseases at the same time. And they just said to us, simply, you can, we cannot afford the, the, the way the U.S. is delivering health care. We've got to find innovative ways. And I just think, my God, the Fed isn't a cry for action. Nadine, what's, what's your take on the, the global sort of access to health care and where we're headed on that? You know, we, we have to, like Deborah said, we have to change dramatically the way we look at how we're delivering health care. And actually, Stacy mentioned something earlier about, you know, the Google, the Apples of the world, the Samsung of the world. I think part of the solution is coming is going to come from more technology, cheaper technology. Another part, I think during your conversation, we talked about innovation not necessarily being the product. Mm -hmm. I think the way we're delivering the product today, you know, we're talking about distribution. You know, we start from the supply chain, from the make to the sell. All of that, we need to innovate in every single element of that supply chain, mm -hmm. including the distribution end of it, to figure out how do we get this product at a lower cost. And by cost, I don't mean the cost of the product, but the cost of treating that patient over the lifetime of the patient. One thing we don't mention enough is often payers and, uh, and the government, you know, CMS, they look at the cost of today. And what worries us often is the cost of tomorrow, meaning what is the cost of not treating hypertension today, for example? Mm -hmm. It's much higher than the cost of treating hypertension, no matter what price tag you put on hypertension, because guess what? $487 billion is spent in the United States every year on treating diseases that are the consequence of poorly treated hypertension. So when you start thinking about all of this, it's, it's mind-boggling how sometimes we can be myopic as a, as a society, as, as a whole. Uh, but uh, again, you're going to hear me saying innovation like 16,000 times because I believe mm -hmm. in innovation, not only in terms of product design, but also the way we deliver it, business model, et cetera, to solve some of these issues. I agree with you, Deborah. The ACA opened the eyes of the public so that when we speak mm -hmm. about those issues, people now are listening. They're paying attention to it. Now, come, came with ACA a lot of other issues like the device mm -hmm. tax and don't get me started there. No. But <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We'd be here all night. Mm -hmm. Phil, I'd love to hear your, your opinion on On which piece? I kind of got lost in where the questions landed. <laughs> yeah, just... we meandered a little bit there, didn't we? So what so, can I tell you? Regarding the ACA and cost containment yeah. and sort of the effect on the hospital customer. So um, like probably panelists and just about everybody in this room who works with clinicians, I spend a lot of time with clinicians. Mm -hmm. I was in uh, you know, a week, a month or more for sure on the road. Um, not a, a lot in the U.S., but also Canada, a little bit of Latin America, Europe, and occasionally Asia-Pac. And um, what I'm kind of to the point about care, what, what's, what's really amazed me is that the one thing I find almost everywhere I go, but more so than, and maybe it's two things. One is that fundamentally clinicians, first and foremost, always care about the care of their patient and how you deliver care in a way that helps them do their job better. Mm -hmm. That doesn't amaze me. What does amaze me is that everywhere I go, it's rare where I don't meet with not only the clinicians and see cases, but then I meet with the hospital administration. And it used to be not that long ago where their visions were very different. Okay? Today, they're not different. In fact, in my opinion, they're, they're convergent. And, and it's because physicians understand, to Stacy's points of earlier and others, mm -hmm. that it's no longer good enough to just provide excellent care 
you have to go above and beyond that to get paid, and paid in a way that meets the requirements of their government structure or whatnot. And hospital administrators know that they have more power than they've ever had, and so they drive decision-making in a way that's changed the, the complete way we think about treating you know, patients. Um, it, it, nothing's easy anymore. I mean, I'm always, no matter where I go, nothing's easy, right? It, it used to be, I was thinking, Stacy, your point about there was a day where if you made a fancy new gadget, it was like a puma on a branch, right? You could just wave <laughs> that light, and everybody went, oh, you know, and the doc said, give me that, right? So one example might be, you know, the cardiothoracic surgeon is a, is a call point for us. Well, we, we are in the process of eradicating that call point because technology is taking over, innovation is taking over. Mm -hmm. um, I think I just read somewhere that we're in, already in dire need of surgeons because nobody wants to go into surgery anymore. So, so if you want to talk about the power of innovation, you want to talk about how we change the way they think and vice versa, um, the way we treat and, and provide access to care is just radically different. And yet, no matter where you go, you find these themes. No matter where you go around the world. Now, Phil, as an industry, we, we, we missed, and mea culpa here, all of us, we missed reading some of the early tea leaves. You know, when, when in a couple of years, 2008, 2009, 70% of the cardiology practices got bought by hospitals. We kept thinking that the cardiologist, the interventional cardiologist, is going to make a decision of stent A versus stent B or drug eluted versus bare metal. And we kept the same business model mm -hmm. as an industry. And then we start struggling, saying, why is the price going down? Why are we growing? You know, why is the coronary market sucks, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we heard. But we missed seeing the fact that this hospital acquiring practices is making that convergence of interest. Mm -hmm happening at a much faster rate. Mm -hmm. And now you've got to start thinking about how to sell to Walmart. And, yeah, you know, and especially Walgreens in and a capitated healthcare, mm -hmm. we're talking about the closed loop systems. Mm -hmm. And it's, we used to think that hospitals are customers, are our customers. Now we think they are our customers, but at the same time they are our competitors because we are competing with the same, for the same dollars. So you take, maybe it's too long of a conversation, but let me keep it short. You take an the healthcare model, a cost of a procedure has to be divided into, uh, in, into many pieces, right? A piece of it will go to drugs, a piece of it will go to devices. Who control how that is divided? It's the hospital. But they have a piece as well themselves in it. So they're at the same time as the jury and the judge in determining how we split that pie in a capitated healthcare. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we're looking at it as an industry saying, oh man, I need to compete with my customers for the dollars. How could that happen, right? And we, I think we're a little bit behind on this as an industry. We started seeing this about a year ago. I think it's, you know, we're starting to move, but it's still, we need to move faster. Okay, that's the next trend that's coming to us. You know, they, and it's, it is part of it, it's consequence of ACA. Part yeah. of it is, it's just a matter of fact, you know. We're moving more and more towards closed loop systems, the Walmart, the Kaisers. Mm. I'm sorry, it's a long answer here. Ah, Keep good. them short. <laughs> so for each of the panelists, I'd love to hear your take on where MedTech going to be in 2020. Tomorrow morning. I can, I can predict tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I was wrong on Saturday. <laughs> you, know, you know, Deborah and I were at the Agilemed board meeting, and Joel Mida was with us for the past 48 hours, right? This is, we're talking about Wednesday evening. And he didn't answer his phone. 
in so the dinner on Wednesday evening, Eric Paulson, our congressman here, was sitting in between Joe and I, and we were talking, and no interruption. Saturday all day, no interruption on the hill. Sunday, uh, I'm sorry, this was Thursday, and then Friday, no interruption. Saturday, I, re I read this article in Wall Street Journal. There's no way this is happening. You know, Joe would have been really busy. Yeah, he wanted to see the Brazil soccer game. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, I think, uh, you know, trying to, you know, I, um, I'm going to keep on the same theme I am at because uh, I'm, I'm trying to maybe take a, a broader step back. And I honestly think that the providers are trying to do this, too. They're trying to look at more of a population, you know, and, and how do I keep people from being readmitted than even how do I keep people you know, from, you know, how can I get paid to keep people from even coming into the hospital? And no, by the way, that's better for them, but it's not better for me than, you know, so how do I work through that? So I, um, I think there will be a, a segment of um, suppliers that are going to start understanding that, you know, that there's devices that can help um, provide information through monitoring, through um, body sensing, through telemedicine. Um, that may take us into um, a different balance of uh, a medical device community. It may be um, more telecommunication with, um, you know, the devices, and that's where the, maybe the enabling piece of the Googles with the big data management. Um, I always think about it where you, you go in for surgery and they say, okay, come back for a six-week checkup. Well, hell, you know, maybe it's two days that you're supposed to go, you should get back in there, maybe it's six months, or, you know, and how would you know? And so, and how many times did people go back and get checked up? And so, um, did the shoulder that they put in really work, you know? So, I just think there's going to be, with consumers being more involved, with people really getting an, an understanding of the, uh, uh, of the cost that these chronic diseases are going to cost us, there's going to be more of a... Uh, more investments in trying to figure out how to get into earlier intervention and prevention, balanced with yeah, you know, uh, helping to, to improve treatments. Um, but I think there, my my vision is that there are going to be more, uh, hopefully, you know, investments going towards the prevention and, and intervention piece. Mm -hmm. Phil, so I I go with what I know versus what I don't know. It's hard to think out that far. Like Nadim says, I'm just happy to get up in the morning and get going, but. Um, I will say this, one thing I do know, I just read a statistic that in the United States for the next 20 years, every day there's 20,000 people turning 65 years old. Um, that tells me that there's gonna be a rebirth for this industry because the need is gonna be higher than ever. And I think on top of that, you've got, um, I'll even put it this way, I think innovation is gonna be, I think it's gonna explode. I, I'm actually an optimist. I, I think that, um, you know, whether, regardless of how you look at deals, if it's breadth or targeted depth or however you look at it, put that aside a second. When you've got a lot of people who are getting a lot sicker, I mean, you look at some of the data coming out of Mayo, Olmstead County data, I mean, pick a disease. The minute you turn 65, it skyrockets in terms of prevalence and, and issue. And, and so the need for what we do in this room is, is going to be enormously important. And, and I think that, I, I don't know exactly how the landscape's going to all play out, but I do know this to a point that was made earlier, if I were 22 years old, biomedical engineering is where I'd go. No question about it. When, when I look back and say, what did I do wrong? That's one, I mean, I'm a chemi, but I, you know, biomedical is where it's at, right? It wasn't there 20 years ago, but it certainly is today, and, and that's where I'd go. I, I, think, I think the prospects here are just enormously positive. I really do.